This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I'm Brent Nelson, and you're welcome to be here, even if you're here by accident. So you don't need to feel bad. Well, I just got back from the ACTEC, or American College of Trust and Estates Council, uh, annual conference in San Diego. It's a great conference. Um, they do a good job. They always have good speakers and good topics. And it tends to be a conference that covers kind of the latest and greatest of things in uh, our industry. So I thought I would give you some of the highlights. None of this is going to be an extreme um, detail on any one of these topics because each one of them could be a separate podcast. And frankly, each one of them very well might be a separate podcast in the future. Certainly on some of these, they will be. And uh, I thought that I could run through these in a way that at least would give you uh, an idea of the current thinking. You know, what is the thing that is on people's minds uh, at the moment in, as I say, in this uh, industry. Now the people, of course, speaking were, were lawyers. That's the Trust and Estates Council portion of ACTEC. So um, this is really coming from the lawyer perspective. There could be other things that you know might be from the investment advisor perspective or the accountant perspective or the insurance perspective that would make people think that this is not the right list of highlights. But be that as it may, it is the list. So First off, uh, the Build Back Better Act. I know I even got asked questions about Build Back Better Act um, by clients as recently as yesterday, and the answer to it is almost nobody is even talking about it. Um, It appears that it is, for the time being, dead and not being resurrected, and that there are just other priorities um, at the moment. So um, there was a spending package that was passed recently, but it did not include any tax changes. So there's really nothing happening in Congress right now that relates to tax changes, interestingly. Um, So no Build Back Better Act, and everybody seemed to acknowledge that, and frankly, very few people were talking about it. Maybe they're tired of talking about it. Um, I don't know. So the second thing that really got brought up in lots of different forums and lots of different contexts, I mean, I even heard them talking about this in the Estate and Gift Tax Committee Um, meeting, which it's not an estate and gift tax topic, and that was the SECURE Act proposed regulations. And I emphasis on proposed because they're not the final regulations yet. And they can change because the IRS um, takes in comments on these proposed regulations, and then they're supposed to sort of respond to the comments and make any adjustments in the regulations that are warranted from the comments that they receive. And of course, they are certain to receive comments on these because it's it is a it is a big um, and important topic. But the Secure Act, as you might remember, included as part of it a provision about required minimum distributions uh, or minimum required distributions, depending on who you're talking to and what section of the code or regs they've been reading. But at any rate, these uh, required minimum distribution rules we thought said that. Um, if you named a non-eligible designated beneficiary, 
which is basically anybody other than a spouse and minor children and certain um, disabled children, uh, that the payout rate is that they must make a withdrawal of all the funds from the inherited IRA or inherited 401k, etc. by the end of the 10th calendar year after the year of the owner's death. We were totally wrong about that. Apparently, the 10-year rule is just a backstop to the normal life expectancy rules um, so that by the end of the 10th year, not only do you have to have re- withdrawn the, the um, annual required distributions based on life expectancy, but by the end of the 10th year, that's when you're supposed to withdraw the balance of the account. So it's a backstop rule, apparently, uh, according to the people who write these regulations. And there was some commentary that when you look at there, there's the dogs making an appearance. Um, when you when you look at some of the, the language in the statute, some of the commentary was that they think that that probably is at least a reasonable interpretation of the statute, Uh, but it was still a surprise. And there were some special rules, including the proposed regulations that relate to trusts uh, that we'll definitely talk about in some future uh, podcasts. And we'll talk about how that might or might not relate to some of the trust planning that we've been thinking about since the SECURE Act became the law. Uh, The next thing that got a lot of attention was a case called Smaldino. In the Smaldino case, there was a uh, transfer of assets from one spouse who had no exemption against a state gift and GST tax to another spouse who did have exemption, and then essentially the same or the next day, a transfer into a an irrevocable trust for children. And the IRS and the court, sorry, um, or the IRS argued and the court agreed that the transfer was really to be viewed as a transfer from the spouse who didn't have any exemption into the trust. And there was some issues with the way that things had been documented. For example, the wife's uh, who had made the transfer into the irrevocable trust, ultimately, um, her ownership of an interest in the entity that was transferred to her was never actually booked into the records of the entity. There was no income or anything allocated to her as an owner of the entity. And she really testified on the stand that the idea was that she had agreed to make the transfer. And those are not great facts. In fact, those are facts that we're usually trying to minimize uh, when we are doing transfers into irrevocable trust. So, and for the reasons that um, the small Dino case highlighted, which was that it was a it was treated as a transfer from the spouse who didn't have exemption, which of course generated a tax uh, where they didn't think they were going to have a tax. The next case that uh, got quite a bit of discussion was a case called Levine. And the Levine case is a split dollar life insurance case, which is interesting because um, there's been a, a string of split dollar life insurance cases that have come out, including a case called Morissette. And the Levine case was a taxpayer f- win, really, a taxpayer friendly case. There was maybe uh, less uh, aggressive use of discounts on the valuation that was involved in the case, but very specifically, the court was not willing to apply Section 2036A2 and Section 2038, both of which have language that basically say if the if the transferor has the ability alone or in conjunction with other people to kind of change um, the the beneficial use of the gift, such as by terminating the repayment rights in a split dollar arrangement, uh, that that would 
cause the grantor to be tr treated as owning the assets that are inside the trust. And in those cases, it would be a life insurance trust. But the Levine case wouldn't apply that rule based on the fact that there was an independent trustee who had the ability to terminate uh, the reimbursement contract and reimburse the grantor for the premiums that were paid on the policy. And if a lot of this sounds like gobbledygook because you're not familiar with split dollar um, arrangements, I apologize. I'm not going to explain them right now, but maybe we'll talk about them in the future. But that was a that was a taxpayer win, and it comes on the heels of a couple of cases, the Powell case and the Cahill case in particular, that most recently have made us really leery of 2036A2 and 2038. And so maybe it, it provides some green shoots of guidance on how to negotiate those uh, those sections, which frankly I think a lot of people were thinking could be done by including independent parties into the mix. So the next thing that got a lot of uh, attention was a, a chief counsel advisory memorandum from from the IRS. So this is not like binding precedent or anything, but the result of it was so uh, uh, surprising that it got a lot of attention. That was CCA 2021-52018, CCA 2021-52018, for anybody who's keeping score at home. And in that CCA, the, the big takeaway was that they so vastly and poorly undervalued some stock in a private company that was being acquired in the future into a GRAT, and it happened to be a two-year, quote, zeroed-out GRAT, uh, that the IRS concluded that the GRAT failed on operation, and therefore it was not a GRAT at all. It didn't qualify as a GRAT, and so it was deemed a gift of the entire value of the asset that was put into the trust. Now, that's a very striking result because the regulations seem to have a savings clause that basically says you can you can do a value, you can do... Um, you can describe the annuity payment from a grant in in the form of a formula, like a percentage or fraction. And so therefore, if you're just adjusting values within a formula, so for example, if your original appraisal is not good and the IRS determines that a higher value should have been used in the future, the formula should fix that so that you would be owed an amount that is equivalent to the values run through this formula in the document. But the IRS and the CCA, I guess, thought that the the case was so egregious that they were going to take this position that the grad itself failed for on operational grounds. That's not something that we've ever seen before. It's not really something that's in the regulations. Um, so the result was a surprise, to say the least. The next thing that got a lot of attention at, um, at the conference was the Corporate Transparency Act. And the Corporate Transparency Act will require newly formed entities, uh, being entities that are formed by filing something with the state, but these newly formed entities to submit disclosures of the ultimate beneficial owners of entities, not just corporations. Um, it could be LLCs, could be certain types of partnerships. And so this beneficial owner information, the beneficial owner being the human being when you run down the chain, uh, who's the actual beneficial owner in the entity, has to then be disclosed to the federal government. The federal government has basically said that they're going to hold on to the information. It's not going to be made public. In some countries, it is made public. Uh, but ultimately, this is meant to bring the U.S. more in compliance with international standards, and particular, particularly the OECD standards. And we've been a bit of a black hole in terms of transparency, quite frankly. Um, but those rules will become effective when the final regulations are adopted, and people seem to think that those final regulations will be adopted this calendar year. 
uh, being 2022, and therefore um, people need to be aware of this. It means in the future when people are forming, say, LLCs by filing something with the state where they're forming the LLC, not only will they form the LLC with the state, they may or may not get an EIN for the LLC for tax purposes, but they will also be submitting this beneficial ownership uh, form or ultimate beneficial owner form to the federal government it, within that process. If they don't do it within 30 days of forming the entity uh, or whatever number of days are in the final regulations, but within a certain number of days of forming the entity, then penalties kick in and the penalties can be actually quite substantial. Right now in the, in the proposed regulations, the penalties are $500 per day of noncompliance. So it is meaningful and it's not something that can be ignored. And it's something that many different professionals are going to have to be aware of. Because if you know that uh, your clients are doing entity formation or you are assisting them in forming entities, then you're just going to have to know that on the checklist is going to be this ultimate beneficial owner form. Finally, there was quite a bit of discussion at the conference about inequality issues and, uh, and racial inequality issues in particular. In the United States, the focus was more on the wealth gap, I think, and the historical reasons for the wealth gap, and then specifically focusing on types of things that could be done to address the wealth gap that really include the efforts of estate planning professionals. And some of those things being, for example, creating new code sections that would incentivize setting money aside to help people in disadvantaged communities, um, as part of a way to uh, systematize some form of reparations that would try to sort of even the balances. Uh, there was a very robust conversation about that, um, which uh, I'm hoping to have later on in the podcast and, and bring on one of the, po the panelists from those discussions to really kind of dig into the weeds on that. So, all right, I know this is, this is a bit short of the normal conversation, but that those are... Some of the highlights, obviously, I'm not capable of going to every single session, uh, so I don't know every single thing that was discussed at the conference. It's a big conference, um, but these were the ones that really stood out to me as like, if you were trying to keep your finger on the pulse of what is the latest and greatest thinking in terms of themes uh, within our industry, these are the things, uh, and these are the things that kind of have people talking, so to speak. So. Hopefully that's useful. And as I say, I'm, I'm really hoping to and intending to cover most of the things on this list in more detail on future episodes. So you can look forward to that uh, if you're looking for any sort of guidepost of where this thing is going and what sorts of things we're going to be talking about on future episodes. That's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good list. Uh, and a, there's a decent chance that I'll cover everything on the list. I can't promise that I'll hit every single one of them, but... Uh, there's a really decent chance that we'll cover everything on the list, maybe with the exception of Build Back Better, because, again, it seems to be dead at the moment. Nobody's really talking about it. And so you probably don't want me to talk about it because it's not very helpful for me to talk about things that aren't really happening. So uh, with that, I'll let you go. And I, as usual, am humbled and very appreciative of anybody who spends any amount of time listening to me uh, talk on this podcast. So thank you very much for joining me. Hey listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw.com. 
I'll see you there. <laughs>